Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojola. This week, a county commissioner's meeting goes sideways, all over a mask. We cannot have our God-given liberties taken away by a governor. We'll get the latest on Afghanistan from a four-star general. Two suicide bombers assessed to have been ISIS fighters detonated in the vicinity of the Abbey Gate at Hamad Karzai International Airport. The U.S. Supreme Court jumps into the mess at the southern border, and believe it or not, you are not a horse. And my only side effect is I can't see in the morning. That's a big side effect. We'll explain a little bit later on, but first, joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich, and before we get to the issue of a potential lawsuit against the city of Seattle, let's kind of reset how things have gone over the last couple of weeks uh, with regards to the King County Courthouse in downtown Seattle, because the city did clear out that nearby homeless encampment at City Hall Park. Yeah, City Hall Park, which is owned by the city, which members of the King County Council, some of them think the county should own it, so there's a ploy to get that park back into the county's hands. But yes, two weeks ago, they just care after spending basically six weeks of doing outreach, came in and over the period of two days was able to move everybody out or the people that didn't weren't offer some sort of shelter. They left on their own accord, left the camp, and that camp that had been there growing since the beginning of the pandemic this is when it really started to really exist and grow disappeared in two days after a county-funded program um, led by the county with support from the city in terms of some transitional housing, but a county-led program got them out of a city-owned park. And I can't underline that enough because... So it's essentially the sheriff's office doing what Seattle police well, should the be sheriff, doing. Well, the sheriff's office wasn't involved at all. Really? Uh, there was no police involved. You know, the days of the navigation center, navigation team and the Seattle police coming in during these camp cleanouts, sweeps, some people call them sweeps, that's long gone. What happened over those two days? Not one Seattle police officer was there until the Parks Department showed up to start putting up fencing and doing their work to restore the park. And so that was at request of the Parks Department, but the police were not there to participate in the removal of campus. But it was the county doing a removal of an encampment on city property because the city wouldn't do it. Well, the city allegedly has the inability, couldn't do it. Yes. I mean, you, you know, people say, well, why couldn't the city do it? Well, the city was doing outreach there, but it didn't do it in the way that Just Care has this approach of individually working with people. And the people I've talked to that have been working with Just Care say, yeah, they come out on always, they're meeting their needs. They're kind of meeting everybody at where they're at. Each person's different. Whereas during the navigation team, it was like, hey, do you want a place to go? Here's a shelter. If you say no, then we're going to boot you out of here. It was like a one-day kind of outreach that the city was doing a year ago. So it wasn't effective at all. But this new, the method that Just Care is doing, a little bit, it's more effective. They were able to clean out a, a roof, a camp that was at 3rd and Union, almost a block-long camp in downtown Seattle, and they did that in a day. So they have a different approach. They have their own resources. They have their own vendors. And they were using county money this time. And now the city actually provided some money for Just Care, but that money didn't kick in yet at the City Hall Park cleanup. So it's really county money that did that And one. And all of this, this cleanup, I think it's fair to say, wouldn't have happened if the woman wasn't attacked in the King County Courthouse bathroom by a homeless person from that encampment. No, it, it was in the works during that time. Well, it certainly expedited. It, well, it, it drew a lot of attention and a lot of ire and a lot of 
anxiety in the courthouse. I mean, that was talked about in repeated meetings with council members and the judges, the anxiety that brought him because it happened inside the courthouse, not outside. Mm-hmm. We've, we have, we're, we've heard of random attacks, but this was inside in a bathroom in the courthouse where there's supposedly security that you had to get through to get in there. Yeah. So that's what, what kind of agitated. Him. Well, and but beyond just the park, there's still the problem with security in and around the King County Courthouse. In fact, this is what Chief Criminal Judge Sean O'Donnell had to say. It's just not the park. It's Prefontaine Plaza. It's Third Avenue, which we've had to close uh, because of of the dangers there. It's James Street. Uh, Just last week, someone was randomly attacked and punched in the face waiting for her bus. It's not just the park. It's the entire neighborhood. Right. So what happened is the the King County Courthouse has four walls. Mm -hmm. And on one side of the wall, the south wall, was City Hall Park, which became the focus. And a lot of things emanated from there. We've had shootings. We've had fatalities, overdoses. You name it. It's happened in that park. But outside the other walls of the courthouse... There have been some of these random attacks. And there's still, Particularly down on 3rd Avenue where the entrance has been closed. Yes, and because right across the street is was DSE, the main shelter for the city of Seattle, the largest shelter, which is the, the main, half the occupants have moved down to the red line. There's still people living there in the apartment parts. But it's still a, an issue with people who are un, underserved, have behavioral issues, substance abuse issues. And there's a park called Prefontaine Park, which is at a corner there right across the street from the courthouse, which has always been a source of open drug dealing that I've seen for a long time. I mean, that's just common at that park. And that's where some of the assaults have take place, too. And that's where uh, there's an entrance to the which was the downtown bus terminal tunnel underneath, which is now run by light rail goes through it. And part of that agreement agreement in 1991, a collaboration between the city and the county was to have that tunnel open in 1991. The city agreed to provide extra security and police forces in the parks around the courthouse, especially near that entrance of the tunnel. Well, King County council member Pete von Reichbauer believes that's not happening. So this week, he threatened a personal lawsuit against the city of Seattle as a county employee who works in the courthouse that they're not upholding their end of the deal, providing the promised added Seattle police security at that park and at the parks, including City Hall Park, that they agreed to in 1990. So is he going to go through with this lawsuit? I mean, he said he's threatening it. He's just threatening it, but he says... He told me there's nothing action, no action this fall, no changes. He will make good on his threat. So what would come out of that is what would he be seeking in this for more Seattle police to be down there? Because Seattle police, as we heard in this meeting with with the uh, judge, Sean O'Donnell, they're short staffed. Right. And they, every, they can't respond to everything. And everybody recognizes that. It, it, but the city has an issue with the people that are down there. Now, either you uphold the camping laws you know, it's illegal to camp in City Park, and you kind of nip some of those issues in the bud before they expand uh, at the park or so these tents that are now in front of City Hall, because some people moved in front of City Hall. Some people went a couple blocks down the road on 4th Avenue at the interchange I-90. If you don't stop the progression of the expansion of these camps, which inherently breeds some sort of crime element, not everyone is, you know, a criminal, but they, they do, crime does originate from these camps. Unless you nip that in the bud, you're going to have bigger police issues and you don't have the police force to handle it. It's a pressure point. I mean, there's also talk 
by Judge O'Donnell, who you just heard from, about a potential lawsuit, a nuisance lawsuit by the judges against the city of Seattle, declaring the park a nuisance and the surrounding area, and Seattle is not handling this nuisance. So this this whole issue has been going on for how many years now? I oh, mean, we're going, had, well, I mean... The emergency has been since uh, Mayor Ed Murray well, in if 2015. You go, if you go back to the history of the park, it used to be known as Muscatel Meadows, where there's winos and hobos. But now, as Pete Von Reichbauer said... The wine bottles have been traded for syringes. The glass from broken bottles, which was a big fear, are now traded with stabbings and fatalities. So it's gotten progressively worse. The history of that park, there's some, there's some history there, and it's continuing to perpetuate. The county wants to nip it in the bud now and stop it right now. What is the city doing, if anything, at this point? Asking the city mayor's office and the parks department, they sent me an official response that right now, they're restoring vegetation, you know, re-institu- re-putting in the, the, the sprinkler systems in the that were destroyed in the park. Yeah, because they said it was going to take months to repair City Hall Park from this homeless encampment that was right, there. Right, right. Well, I mean, and, uh, just eyeballing it today, they haven't done anything. They put out rodent traps. That's part of it. They control the rodent. There were so many rats running around because of that camp. Um, they've cleaned a lot of it. They're going to have to replace some of the dirt. And they have a lot to work to do. But in six weeks, they've said that they're going to open that park up on October 12th. In six weeks from... That sounds pretty ambitious. It is very ambitious. But that's the target day. It was two months from the day that they cleaned the park. The Parks Department's already said, well, that date's subject to change, you know, given what conditions would happen. But what the judges and King County Council members want is some assurances from the city of Seattle that things won't go back to status quo. They can't go back to status quo, they said. To even allow camp to revamp and reform at the park, can't allow that. That's what they're saying. So they want to hear what a plan from from the city of Seattle to prevent that from happening again. Well, I'm guessing the city of Seattle is not saying anything because you're going to have a new mayor in a couple of months. You're going to have a new well, president did say, of the council. The, park, the Parks Department did tell me that if a tent, when they reopen, if a tent does appear, it would be removed immediately and declared an obstruction. And in the MDAR rules, if there's an obstruction, like a tent's blocking a sidewalk, that's a uh, grounds for immediate removal, according to the city's own rules. Yeah, so, but so why at this park and not every other that, park? That, well, that's I can't answer that question. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's what we've been asking the city for how many years now? Yeah, and, 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 and you mentioned that there's going to be the lawsuit, potential lawsuit, I should say, from Pete Von Reichbauer, King County Council member. There's the potential lawsuit from the judges that have to go down there. And all of this against the city of Seattle, who's going to have a new city attorney. That's right. We'll have to defend the city against these lawsuits, and the person leading the race at this moment is a police abolitionist. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I don't know what to say about that. You know, you just from the outside perspective, someone who doesn't live in the city, someone who doesn't live in the county, it seems as if Seattle almost is set up for remaining status quo. You have Lorena Gonzalez, who is. I think, fair to say, the leading candidate for the general election based on where the votes broke down amongst all of the candidates in the primary uh, for mayor of Seattle. You have the city council or the uh, city attorney's race with Nicole Thomas Kennedy, very left of Pete Holmes. I don't think Ann Davison wins because she has the history of a Republican and R is the scarlet letter in this town. Mm -hmm. It seems like nothing's going to change, at least if you look at the trends. I mean, in my crystal ball, I think you're somewhat correct. I mean, uh, yeah, we can all be 
the prognosticator on this one in terms of what we think is going to happen. But the reality is, at least with the City Hall Park, is that the county is going to go through and most likely pass a request, a motion, asking the King County Executive Dow Constantine to enter into negotiations with the City of Seattle for a possible land swap or purchase of City Hall Park. I mean, I, I think that's going to go forward. They got the votes for that now. Now it's up to Constantine to come up with a plan and ask and whether or not the city would do that. Now, it's preliminary. It's not in official writing yet. We've asked the city. There's no comment because they, ha- they haven't seen anything in writing. So that's kind of the immediate plan, regardless of who's going to win the election yeah, well, of the and, mayor. And, but, I mean, the park's one thing, but we heard in the soundbite earlier that it's not just the park. Yeah, that's right. There's, yeah. there's, it's the whole neighborhood that's a problem. Well, and then, and then you have... The police department saying they're only responding to priority one call. So if someone picks your pocket, runs away with your wallet or purse, they're not going to respond to that. All right, Matt Markovich, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. But when we come back... I'm not going to participate in an unlawful meeting where you incite people... Hang on, hang on. Order. Where you incite others to violate the law. I don't have to... I'm not inciting others. It's their free will. When the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, a county commissioner in eastern Washington openly defying the law. We cannot have our God-given liberties taken away by a governor. That's Clint Didier, a commissioner for Franklin County down in the Tri-Cities. He has long been an opponent of any COVID precautions and an even longer critic of Governor Inslee. At Tuesday's meeting, he refused to follow the newly enacted mask mandate, leading to one of the other commissioners walking out. I'm trying to conduct the meeting without a mask and without yes, these sir. I am. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm not going to participate in an unlawful meeting where you incite people. Hang on, hang on. Order. Where you incite others to violate the law. I don't have to. I'm not inciting others. It's their free will. County lawyers even advised Didier to wear a mask and that the governor's mask mandates was perfectly legal. County prosecutor Sean Sant. This was not some kind of power grab that the governor took upon himself. This was power that was designated and authorized by the legislature. Something that Didier refused to acknowledge. I know that our legislature supposedly gave him this authority. As citizens, we don't accept that. Now, the meeting continued, but devolved into really just an argument over whether or not Didier should mask up. Joining me now is Rob Francis. He is a talk show host and a reporter down in Tri-Cities at KONA Radio. And this really kind of is par for the course for Didier because he's been standing up to mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and, and really anything else having to do with COVID. It's been going on for a while. What we saw in the meeting on Tuesday was probably the low point of a number of low points that we've seen in Franklin County Commissioner meetings. Commissioner Peck, who was the commissioner that walked out, is by no stretch of the imagination anything other than a conservative, as are almost all the electeds in eastern Washington. But he also understands that you can't pick and choose the laws that you want to follow, and you can't ignore the laws that you don't like. And regardless of whether or not he is a fan of the mandates, he understands that based on the governor's mandate and how it affects to elected officials who take an oath of office, unlike regular citizens who may choose not to follow the mandate, they take an oath of office, which opens them up to, if they violate mandates, the possibility of being recalled or even possibly removed 
by Attorney General Bob Ferguson, which was also something, to my understanding, was relayed to Commissioner Didier that that was a possibility. Um, he refused executive counsel before the meeting began. He said, I understand what you're telling me. They offered to go into an executive session. He did not want to do that. And then the the theater began for just over two hours, the Franklin County Commissioner's meeting. I will tell you something that was a little interesting, and that is Commissioner Rocky Mullen, who there are those that believe that he is in line with Commissioner Didier on many things. Commissioner Mullen during that meeting was asked by Commissioner Didier if he was going to support him in this, and Commissioner Mullen, wearing a mask, told him that he didn't feel comfortable doing it. And then two hours later, when Commissioner Didier asked him, should we go on with the meeting or should we adjourn, he said, we should not go on with the meeting as there are people who are here to do business that could be affected if, in fact, this is an illegal meeting. And so they did not conduct any business. So Commissioner Mullen saw the issue at hand with Commissioner Didier not being masked. Commissioner Didier stated that he had a release from his doctor that he didn't have a mask. But if you go back and you watch some of the earlier videos of commissioner meetings uh, during the height of the pandemic, Commissioner Didier is, in fact, wearing a mask. So this is a lot of just grandstanding for Didier, isn't it? It would seem that way. Um, there is some speculation that he may once again attempt to run for Congress in 2022, as there are many in this area that are contemplating running against uh, Representative Dan Newhouse. There are a couple that have already declared three, I believe. There is some speculation Commissioner Didier may also consider running for that seat. But he's, he's ran for that seat twice. He's ran for governor. He's ran for Senate. And he's lost all of these and then was finally able to get elected to the county commission in Franklin County. Does he think he has that broad support beyond just his local area? He does believe that he has the support, obviously, or or he wouldn't think about it. But that, again, that's just speculation on my part. Um, I I understand that there may be consideration. I don't know that he hasn't come out and officially confirmed that he intends to run, uh, but he is the chairman of the Franklin County Republican Party as well. And so it would seem that that could be something he may aspire to again, because it also coincides with with what would be his run for reelection for Franklin County Commissioner. So he would choose to do one or the other would be my guess. It would seem that there could be an indication he may consider another congressional run. It, it's one thing to look at Didier's actions, whether it's this particular incident at the uh, county commissioner's meeting or some of the things he's done and said in the past from the outside. You're pretty tied into the local Republican Party there. What's the thought about him within the party? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's not unanimous. Um, there is a split. There are some that don't like the way he has taken the direction of the party. There's also been a lot of personal things that have been injected in this. And I'll give you a couple of examples. There was a rally on the steps of the courthouse earlier this year in Franklin County. Somehow, Joey Gibson made his way to Franklin County. And I know you're familiar with, with mm -hmm. Mr. Gibson on the west side of the state. Patriot prayer and all of that. Exactly. Uh, so someone at this rally decided to reveal the home address of Commissioner Peck. And there was a group that decided to go to Commissioner Peck's personal home, which was on a private road. Commissioner Didier was at the rally and he didn't stop them. Wow. He did, he did nothing to prevent them from going. And Joey Gibson was front and center with a microphone uh, screaming at Commissioner Peck, along with others that were at the scene. 
uh, until Pasco police showed up and told them they had to leave because they were on a private road. So where does this all end? I mean, it is uh, clearly there's bad blood. There is. Uh, maybe more lawsuits. Uh, maybe Commissioner Didier chooses to run for Congress. Maybe Commissioner Didier decides that he's going to move in another direction and continue to be more of an activist than an elected official. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I know that Commissioner Peck, uh, certainly when you watch these meetings, tries to be a voice of reason, even though he does not agree, at least to my understanding, with the governor's mandates, there's also the understanding that it's the law and that they are legal mandates. And there have been 30 challenges made against the governor's emergency powers, including, I think, at least two by Commissioner Didier on a personal level that have all failed. So what's left? Encouraging civil disobedience? I don't know. Where it ends, I can't begin to tell you because it doesn't seem like anybody's going to give any ground. And we've known each other long enough, Jeff, you know where I stand on these issues as well on a personal level and politically, uh, that I'm not a fan of them either. But I also understand that you don't get anywhere by fighting the law unless you're fighting to change the law. That's the proper path to go. Just saying no because you want to say no doesn't solve a problem. It makes a problem worse. Well, Didier seems to think of himself as a constitutional lawyer, but he has no legal training. He is does not have a law degree. No, nor a medical degree. I think that's worth mentioning as well. But it, here's the issue, Jeff. Both of you, Both you and I have seen very mesmerizing personalities over our years in this industry. Mm-hmm. You have covered some stories that have certainly raised eyebrows. I can recall a number of instances over the years of people who have had an amazing sway over other individuals because of their passionate speech and the way they have been able to reach them. Um, I, I think Commissioner Didier is certainly one of those people. Uh, I think that he has a way of getting some individuals to believe as passionately as he does about things. Um, and he has the ability to convince some people to ignore uh, some of the things that are out there wide open uh, for everyone to consume. And majority of people believe are true. Um, recently on our program, we had an infectious disease doctor talking about COVID and talking about the spread of the Delta variant and all these other things. During that Franklin County meeting, Commissioner Didier cited our program uh, as Dr. The doctor called into the Franklin County Commissioner meeting to express his disappointment. Commissioner Didier made the mention that he was pushing mandates on our program, which in fact he was not. So while you are finger wagging at certain individuals that you believe are spreading misinformation, you're doing the exact same thing yourself. And to me, that doesn't make you a leader. That makes you someone who is spreading information. But that's my opinion. All right, Rob Francis with KONA Radio in Tri-Cities. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the opportunity. When we come back, the worst day of Biden's presidency and the latest on the attacks in Afghanistan. We'll hear from a four-star general when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, we saw the terrorist attack in Kabul as the Americans were being evacuated at the airbase. Shortly after that news broke, Como's Elisa Jaffe spoke with retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey. Twelve U.S. service members are dead and at least 15 injured following attacks at the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. It's a hard day today. Two suicide bombers assessed to have been ISIS fighters detonated in the vicinity of the Abbey Gate at Hamad Karzai International Airport 
and in the vicinity of the Barron Hotel, which is immediately adjacent. Marine General Kenneth McKenzie of U.S. Central Command saying a number of Afghan civilians are also dead and injured, but they do not know the total. He said the threat from ISIS-K is extremely real, adding they expect more attacks. Retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey joining us on the Como Newsline. McKenzie says they're working with the Taliban general and preparing to operate while under attack, but these attacks could be rocket attacks, suicide by vehicle, or suicide vests. So, How can we safely get Americans out of there while there are these threats? Well, it's a very dangerous situation, obviously, on the ground. The first of what could be uh, continuing attacks by terrorist organizations have now occurred with very significant loss of life to the Marines. This is going to get harder to do. The evacuation essentially is over, except for the 5,000 already on the airfield. It's difficult to imagine how we could continue to process potential suicide bombers through those gates with only the Taliban providing outer security. So, uh, yeah, I think midnight on Tuesday is the, the closeout, and the president would be well advised to do just that and to extract our military forces and live with the outcome. How do we know this attack is the work of ISIS-K and not the Taliban? ISIS-K working with a lot of prisoners that were just released when the Taliban took over too, right? We couldn't be sure of anything. Uh, The Haqqani network, which is a primary Taliban force in Kabul right now, is Haqqani himself is as much a criminal as he is a jihadist. So I think we ought to assume that at a highest levels, the Taliban want us out and are trying to facilitate our extraction. But on, on a given day for a Marine or Army paratrooper at one of these gates, these are hostile forces just beyond the barbed wire. Explain what is happening. Why so many troops work so close together? It, it sounds like they were so exposed. They were so close to the Taliban at the airport. Well, of course. You know, you've got 100,000 people have flowed through those gates. At various times, there are warnings of that require us to close one. But at the end of the day, these young Marines and paratroopers have to physically search, and that includes women, people trying to get onto the airfield, searching for bombs, weapons. There's some initial screening inside the airport, but Basically, there are masses of terrified humanity trying to get out. Somebody has to be within a touching distance of them. And a supersized bomb, which apparently uh, these two terrorists were carrying, can cause devastating injury to unprotected people standing nearby. Help us understand the relationship between ISIS-K and the Taliban and why it would be in the ISIS-K's best interest to create this chaos. First of all, I'm not sure that anyone actually knows the full extent of the relationship. They are self-avowed enemies, they say. When the 5,000 prisoners were released at uh, Bagram Airfield, allegedly the Taliban killed one of the ISIS-K Uh, leaders who had been incarcerated. I think that's probably the case, but essentially we should not believe that Taliban 2.0 is a sophisticated, kinder, gentler version of jihad than it was uh, 20 years ago, never mind the more extreme factions, and that's all ISIS-K is, which want even self-avowed brutality toward both foreigners and those who won't sign up for their view of Islam. Still to come, a Supreme Court decision about the southern border when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelum. The Supreme Court Tuesday night rejected a bid by the Biden administration to formally discontinue 
Former President Trump's controversial 2008 policy forcing asylum seekers along the southern border to remain in Mexico, the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, while they awaited a hearing on their claims. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Prichet from Washington, D.C. And before we dive into this, what exactly did the Supreme Court say? Because it seems like a very straightforward ruling. Well, Jeff, it is a straightforward ruling. It was, an, it was a single-page order. And you remember, I mean, this Remain in Mexico policy was was highly, highly controversial uh, when it was first implemented. And certainly we saw a lot of coverage of of those camps along the border. But essentially what the court said, it sided with uh, Texas and a group of Republican-led states, which claimed that uh, President Biden didn't lawfully cancel the policy and in doing so encouraged a record surge of migrants uh, that we've seen in recent months. And does this have to do with the Administrative Procedures Act? Because I know that's where President Trump or former President Trump got into a lot of trouble when he tried to change policies. In part, but the, the court's majority said the administration failed to show a likelihood of success for its argument, the Department of Homeland Security's memorandum rescinding that migrant protections protocol uh, was not arbitrary and capricious. Uh, so, I mean, basically, they, they, they didn't go about it the right way in their, in, in their rescinding. So why is this that we have this policy of remain in Mexico? I mean, from the layperson, it seems basically if someone's not yet on American soil, they do not have the constitutional protections that we have here in the United States. Is that kind of the reason for this? Well, that was part of it, right? And I mean, from the Trump administration's perspective, Jeff, I mean, this was this was a deterrent, right? I mean, so, you know, if migrants knew trying to make that journey that they'd have to stay in Mexico before actually being processed, uh, having their asylum claims processed, it might be a deterrent um, and certainly would slow down the numbers of uh, of illegal border crossings, which, again, was was something that, you know, it was a Trumpian policy that he ran on. Uh, and and so we did see numbers plummet uh, un, un, under President Trump and, and certainly with um, the election of President Biden, uh, that migration picked up. And certainly even after uh, the rescinding of this policy, it picked up even more. And so, uh, you know, there there are critics of of the president and that policy that says, uh, uh, excuse me, the president and his his rescinding of this policy that say that, I mean, that is a direct result um, that this this surge that we've seen at the border. What about the, the ruling itself? Was this uh, along partisan lines on the court? Well, so the ruling was six to three. So, I mean, it, when you look at the court having this conservative majority, Majority, uh, in the three liberal dissenters, uh, Justice Breyer, Sotomayor, and and Elena Kagan. Um, so yes, uh, it, it it was it was fairly partisan in its decision, and and so has so has the response to this ruling um, as as well. Department of Homeland Security said they disagree with this ruling, but also, I mean, if we look at uh, former acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, who served under President Trump. You know, he props the MPP program as one of the most effective policies in, in solving the border crisis. So what does the Biden administration do now? Well, I mean, they they, they have to they have to reenact it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, how that ramps up, I mean, I, I think it's still uh, a kind of wait and see. But at least right now, um, you know, they, they, there is no recourse uh, to, to issue any sort of stay. And so so it, it looks like it's going back into uh, uh, into policy. All right. ABC's Alex Prichet from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Still to come, the CDC wants to remind you that you are not a horse. 
We'll explain when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Finally on the Politicast this week, I am not a horse. You are not a horse, and the man who I have on the line right now is also not a horse. That is ABC's Alex Stone reporting from Los Angeles, and kind of explain why I have to say that. Well, I might be. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't really know. Yeah, this is pretty amazing that, that we even have to talk about this, but the FDA is warning that, that you are not a horse, so do not take horse and cow dewormer to prevent covid and the cdc in recent days putting out a health warning mississippi saying it's poison control getting a bunch of calls of of people overdosing this is now a thing that people are going into feed stores nationwide they're buying up uh, a powerful horse and cow dewormer uh, because certain personalities and online sites have said maybe it will protect them from covid this is the the latest miracle drug that uh, has been touted there's one study that was done in a lab not in people saying that the human dose maybe would help with it, but not the animal dose. And at uh, VNV TAC and Feed in Las Vegas, Shelly Smith is a clerk there. She's got none left. She says it's been a run on it. I had a gentleman come in. It was an older gentleman. He told me that his wife was wanted him to be on the ivermectin plan. And I immediately brought him over here because at that time I had this sign hung up. And I told him this isn't safe for you to take. And he says, well, we've been taking it. And my only side effect is I can't see in the morning. That's a big side effect. So, I mean, you probably shouldn't take it. Her handwritten sign says not to be injected into humans. Here's the thing. If you're blind every morning when you wake up and you're taking a, a horse drug, that's probably a bad sign. That's the sign it's doing something to your body. It is a giant injection device with a handle like you're doing caulking uh, you know, around your bathtub. Uh, ivermectin, it treats parasites. There is a human version that, that some doctors have thought maybe works with COVID. There are creams that humans use for headlights. But the horse version and, and cow that non-doctors are buying at these feed stores, way too powerful, can kill you. People are buying it up everywhere, though. Dr. A.J. Manship, horse doctor, says the animal version of ivermectin is extremely dangerous if given in the wrong dose in horses and cows and can kill them, let alone humans. It can have a lot of serious consequences um, in people and in actually some veterinary species as well, especially if the correct dose is not administered. Um, You know, anything from... In animals, um, we see a lot of neurologic disease, so seizures, um, coma, death, um, if it's overdosed. Um, A lot of people that own shepherd dogs will be familiar with this. They're very sensitive to this drug and it can kill them. So, um, you know, anytime uh, these drugs are used in an unattended manner, there's a really high likelihood of uh, complication and it's just not safe yeah so jeff amazing rewarding people who refuse to take the vaccine not to take a horse and cow dewormer that they think might be better because they've heard somebody tell them that it's the new miracle drug that it'll help them if they get covid and it may prevent them from getting it uh but most importantly there is a human version and a cow and horse version and you do not want to be taking the cow and horse version that can kill you but a lot of people are doing it now so and as you kind of mentioned this is people that do not want to take the covid vaccine because they don't trust the doctors saying what's in the vaccine and what it will do to you but yet they will take horse dewormer and this huge injection that is meant for livestock 
<laughs> yeah, essentially. Now, I'm sure there are some who have been vaccinated who think that this is another layer of protection, but uh, many who are doing this don't believe in the vaccine, but they have been told by personalities that who they trust and by what they have read online from supposed doctors that this is the answer to, to protect them. Now, there are some doctors, Joseph, Dr. Joseph Verone, He's in in Texas controversially giving the human version to those with COVID, and he does believe that it works. I have used ivermectin in a few thousand patients. I cannot tell you the exact number, but I know that it's been quite a large number of patients that have not seen a single significant side effect, not one. Not a side effect, but there's really no indication of it's doing anything. And again, that's a human version, but is it really helping anybody? Uh, and other doctors are saying, yeah, you know, they use all kinds of drugs for off-label uses, but this one, not helpful because there is zero evidence behind some beyond a couple of studies in labs that it helps with COVID. Uh, it's anecdotal evidence. It is belief that people have and some doctors have the fda has not approved it for covid won't approve the animal version for humans they say that's not going to happen um but at this point maybe down the road they'll say the human version does have some impact and does help with covid they're not there yet and again the problem is the people are grabbing up what they can get their hands on without a prescription you can buy ivermectin in the animal form all over the place, whether it be in feed stores or on online, on Amazon. You can get it in apple flavor and different things for the animals. It's apple flavor for them, not for you, so that you can get the, the horse to eat it. Um, it, it is, it's considered to be really, really dangerous to, to take the animal version. What does this world come to? ABC's Alex Stone <laughs> from Los Angeles. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.